0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 11 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And today we will be talking about the cruel and senseless murder of Ebony Simpson. As I mentioned at the end of Wednesday's case, this episode does involve the murder of a child, so listener discretion is advised, but we do hope you'll stay and listen because this is an important story. It's a case that isn't talked about that much and we really do think it's important for her story to be heard. So this story starts in August of 1992 in Bargo, which is a small town in New South Wales in Australia. Ebony Simpson was nine years old and she lived in Bargo with her mother Christine, her father and her older brother Zachary. On Wednesday 19th of August, Ebony was getting the bus home from school as usual. The bus dropped her quite close to her house. She had to walk up one street, turn the corner and then walk down her own street to get home. Usually her mum Christine would go and collect her from the bus stop and the two would walk back to the house together. However, on this particular day, Christine was going to be late home and wouldn't have made it in time. Therefore, she asked her son to go and meet Ebony at the bus stop. He said that was fine, he'd get off his bus and then he'd wait for Ebony's bus to arrive. Unfortunately, his bus was late and so when he got to the bus stop and couldn't see Ebony, he just walked home because he assumed that she'd already arrived and that she'd just taken herself home. When Christine got home, she noticed her daughter's shoes weren't outside on the porch as they usually were, and she realised that Ebony was not at home. Her husband called the police, and Christine ran down to the bus stop to see if Ebony was there or if there was any sign of her. The police, having received the family's distressed call, realised that this was a serious incident and they suspected foul play from the very beginning, so they quickly put together a search plan. The police scoured the local neighbourhood for any witnesses or any information that someone might have had. A man came forward and said that his two sons had seen Ebony get off of the bus and had seen her starting to walk towards her home. The boys had waved to Ebony and she had waved back. They then turned round the corner. They said they saw a broken down vehicle at the side of the road. The car was yellow and a man was stood over it looking into the bonnet but they said they didn't see anything else. This was important information for the police as they now knew that Ebony had got on the bus and she had disappeared somewhere between the bus stop and her home. Further canvassing of the neighbourhood revealed information that led the police to believe that Ebony had not made it past that broken down yellow vehicle. Those who lived in the houses that were round the corner from where the car had been parked didn't see Ebony walk past their houses as they usually would have done. The police had a strong suspicion that finding that car and that man would be the key to understanding what had happened to Ebony. The police questioned the boys again later on and they said that they believed the car was a yellow Mazda 808. One of the boys said that it looked like it had recently been repainted and it had irregular patchwork on it, so bits of the bodywork were a darker yellow than other parts of it. The police worked quickly and set up a grid around the area where Ebony had disappeared. By 9pm... Five hours after Ebony's disappearance, they had orchestrated a search party of 200 volunteers and 100 police officers to search the area. The entire search was coordinated and organised, and each set of volunteer groups had their own specific area to search. The police officers also deployed helicopters to look for her. Back at the Simpsons' home, other investigators were trying to get a clearer picture of what had happened that day. They asked Christine if she had seen anything unusual when she had walked Ebony to the bus stop that morning. Christine said that she hadn't seen anything unusual, but, when pushed a bit harder to explain exactly what she had seen, she mentioned that she had seen a yellow car that looked as if it had broken down, and a man stood next to that vehicle. Christine said that she was sure that the car was a Mazda 808 because the bonnet opened up backwards to usual cars. Police officers from outside of town were also called in, and they were briefed and given coordinates for areas they were to search they were also briefed that they were looking for a yellow Mazda 808. One of the police officers from out of town turned around and said, do you mean like that one? And pointed to one of the cars in the car park, the car park that was used by the volunteers. This of course raised alarm bells for some of the officers. The car they were looking for was eerily similar to the one parked right near them, but they said that at this point they couldn't jump to any conclusions. Back at the Simpson household, Christine was giving a description to the police of the man that she said she had seen next to the broken-down yellow Mazda, and a sketch artist drew an e This ephit was distributed amongst the police officers, and one officer picked it up and stared at it. He took the picture and turned around and said, I've just been speaking to this man. <gasps> the man who had been by the side of the road when Ebony had disappeared was there at the site with them, searching the area for the missing girl.
1: Oh my god, you hear about this, don't you? Where, like, the murderers gone to, like, the vigil or something.
0: Yeah, and just inserted themselves into the investigation.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, the police tracked him down amongst the other volunteer searchers and asked him if he'd driven his vehicle to the search site. He said that he had, and, at the officer's request, he walked them over to his car. It was that yellow Mazda 808 that one of the officers had identified in the car park earlier that day. The police asked him to open his boot and the man complied. However, there was nothing visible in the boot. The man, who had identified himself as Andrew Garforth, was very calm and complied with the police fully. They asked him if they could take his vehicle to the police station to take photos of it as they said they wanted to circulate the photos to the media so people could be on the lookout for a similar car. I think realistically, having read a few of the statements from the police involved, they wanted to make sure that they had that vehicle impounded but they didn't really have enough evidence to seize the vehicle so they kind of asked him if he would volunteer up the car and basically said um we just want to like take photos of it and distribute it because we're looking for a really similar car um but in actual fact they wanted to take it to forensically search it
1: god if i was him though i would be a little bit suspicious wouldn't you
0: well, that's kind of what I thought. So when I was watching kind of, and um, there's like a really good documentary on this, which I'll obviously link. But when I was watching it, I was just like, oh, this is like such a coincidence that this guy has the exact same car. He looks really similar to the guy who had broken down. Like he's so calm, like there is no way that it's him. Because he does, he literally just gives like his car over to the police and, and then they, they take it, they tow it to the police station and they start doing forensic testing on it. And then at this point, um, Andrew Garforth also then accompanies the police officers to the station and he's just so willing and so open and he just answers all their questions. So he said he was 29 years old, he was married with two children and that his family had just moved to the Bargo area. The police asked him what he had been doing two days before on the 19th of August, the day that Ebony had disappeared. He gave a brief account of where he had been. He said that he'd been driving around and running various errands. When asked the routes that he had driven, his account revealed that he had not once driven along Arena Road or Bargo Road, and these were the two roads that Ebony got off the bus at and then would have been walking along to get home. The police queried this because they said that the quickest way for him to get to the places that he said he was running errands at would have meant he would have had to have driven down Arena Road and Bargo Road, Um, and obviously the route that Andrew had given in his account he said he didn't go down either of these roads.
1: Yeah, so that sounds a tiny bit suspicious, doesn't it? But then, I don't know, maybe I'm just jumping to conclusions.
0: No, so I think I also found this suspicious when I was watching the police interview. Um, although he does seem really calm, like that's just a general theme throughout. He's very calm. He doesn't really seem like he's suspicious at all. But yeah, I then thought, well, that is really weird because I would have thought that it'd be very unlikely for someone to who looks like him and who drives a very similar... Um, very kind of bold colored vehicle in that area that that they you know someone else it just coincidence that someone else who had the, that exact same vehicle and looked exactly like him had also broken down on one of those roads so i think personally it would have been probably less suspicious if he just said yeah i took one of those roads and i ended up breaking down but then i fixed my car or whatever and i got back in and driven away it does seem quite suspicious that he's like oh i didn't go anywhere near either of those roads
1: yeah exactly
0: So the police also thought this was suspicious and they pushed it further. This time, Andrew stated that he had gone down Arena Road and then he turned onto Bargo Road. This obviously raised the suspicions of the officers. He was very calm and very relaxed, uh, kind of so much so that in the interview, you kind of barely register what he's actually saying the first time he says it, Um, but this is what he said. He said that he pulled over and he had his bonnet up. He said he was putting oil in his car. And then he said, and when the young girl was walking past the car, I grabbed her and put her in the boot.
1: Oh my God. I wasn't expecting that.
0: No, honestly. And I really wanted to actually put in the audio, but you just can't hear it well enough. I think it would have just kind of like, it would have been way too distorted for anyone to hear it properly. Um, but it was honestly, it put the hairs up on the back of my neck. It honestly did. He said it so calmly. Like he just said it as part of like the other sentence that he was saying. Yeah. And you can see it like the police officers kind of like freeze. They're like, wait, did You're he double just take. confess? Yeah. Um, so he said that Ebony had asked him if he was going to let her go. And he told her that he didn't know. <gasps> he drove Ebony to a bush track about seven kilometers away from where he had taken her near the Wiranborough Sanctuary. There was a big water dam there. Andrew Garforth tied Ebony's hands behind her back. He sexually assaulted her. Then he tied her legs up to her hands, put heavy rocks into her school bag and then threw her into the dam. Unfortunately, I think based of the things that I've read, I think Ebony was still alive when he threw her into the dam. Jesus. He said in his police interview that as he walked away, he heard her calling for help.
1: Oh my God. I don't understand why he's just suddenly admitted it so brazenly having before been making a sort of bizarre attempt to claim he had nothing to do with it?
0: It's, I, it, honestly, it's even to me now, it doesn't make any sense. Everything that I've read, all the interviews that I've watched, it makes no sense. I just, I think he has no remorse. Like, I think, and well, I, I know he doesn't have any remorse. It's very clear throughout the rest of the case that he doesn't. But I don't understand why he just did it either i cannot imagine what was going through his head when he just said it but i can only imagine that it's just that he doesn't understand maybe the gravity of what he's done
1: yeah absolutely or he just thought okay they've got me not gonna get away with this one
0: yeah so when the police heard this confession they of course rushed to the dam they saw ebony's pink lunchbox floating on top of the water but unfortunately there was no other movement in the water. The police actually took Andrew Garforth to the dam, and there's police video footage of him showing how he threw her into the water. Uh, The police estimated that she had been thrown about 8 to 10 metres out, and so they obviously searched that area, and they did find Ebony's body. Unfortunately, she had drowned. Two police officers went to Christine's house to tell the family the awful news. They also told the family that her killer had actually been helping in the search and had been a part of the volunteer search party. Kind of when questioned on this, Andrew Garforth said that he helped out with the search because his wife had told him to. And that's kind of all the information really I can find on that. So it's unclear to me if his wife knew what he'd done and was sending him out there to either repent his sins or cover his tracks, or if she was just asking him to go and help out and be neighbourly like all the other husbands and dads were doing. Um, but I mean either way as you can imagine this news was completely sickening to the family
1: god yeah and I mean I suppose you well my guess would be surely she didn't know and she just wanted uh, to make an effort but then it's a bit strange that she wouldn't go and help as well Um, Mm -hmm. but you can't imagine that because I'm surprised he was actually married like once he you said he admitted he'd done it Um, I think my initial thoughts were, oh, he's probably just sort of you know, a creep who lives on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, so did he actually have children as well?
0: Yeah, he had two. Two children. So there's no
1: way, surely, that his wife can have known he had anything to do with it. I mean, you hope And had not. kids and then not say anything. I mean, yeah, you seriously hope not.
0: Yeah, it's it's shocking though. But, I mean, I kind of looked into that quite a lot because I was really confused by that kind of statement that he said. And, you know, there's other police officer statements as well where they said it as well, like, oh, his wife had told him to go out and, and search. And I couldn't quite tell if that, like what that meant, but...
1: Yeah, if there's more you, to it.
0: yeah. Hopefully, you know, you'd like to think that she didn't know because otherwise, well, she might have been able to save Ebony's knife if she'd gone out and, you know, told the police as soon as he came home. But, yeah, let's let's hope that she didn't know. Let's give her maybe the benefit of the doubt until we can see something otherwise. Mm. At the courthouse where Andrew Garforth went to be charged, there was complete outrage outside as he walked in. There were crowds of people demanding that he be hanged and do you know what like I can totally understand that sentiment like this was a really really small close knit town you know the fact that so many volunteers pulled together in the first like four or five hours of her being missing kind of just shows how like what a tight knit community this was so of course like their outrage is completely understandable Um, but they were kind of demanding for capital punishment and stuff to be enforced which I mean obviously Australia doesn't have that does it?
1: No I don't don't think
0: so I don't think so (laughs) So, as has kind of been the theme throughout this episode, Andrew Garforth looked very calm and very relaxed as he walked into the courthouse, and he wasn't showing the slightest bit of remorse. Obviously, the police had his confession, but other evidence that the police found included his shoe prints in the mud near the dam, as well as Ebony's shoe prints next to those. Strands of Ebony's hair were also found on Andrew Garforth's shoes, a strand of wool from his jumper was found on a branch at the dam, and his DNA was also found on Ebony's body. He pled guilty straight away, and the muggy bastard said to his wife, no problem, I'll see you in 14 years.
1: Jesus, what a fucking sick man. Yeah. I hope his wife wasn't there nodding along to that.
0: Um, So, actually, I think that she was. I don't... It's kind of, like, weird. I don't want to, like, badmouth her. I don't know enough about her, but I don't think she seemed to understand the gravity of it either, because... Yeah,
1: because... Sorry, but there's no two ways about this is there I mean if someone I was with I found out had done something like that for me it wouldn't be a case of just you know no comment I would absolutely publicly condemn them and Mm -hmm. share my shock and my sympathy with the family Mm -hmm. so the Mm -hmm. fact that she didn't just come straight out and say you know Jesus I was married to a complete monster I Mm -hmm. you know as a mother myself I can't believe this it sounds to me like she's almost not compliant but it's not enough of a reaction if it's not clear online how she felt about it then she's yeah. yeah not reacted enough by any stretch of the imagination yeah
0: that's yeah that's complete yeah i completely agree with that if if there if it isn't clear what her views are like then she's probably on the wrong side of this because she, it, her views should be clear really shouldn't they absolutely um so yeah he said no problem i'll see you in 14 years but the judge in fact sentenced him to life in prison the judge stated that the crimes committed by Andrew Garforth fell squarely into the category of the worst type of case. He said the indifference that Garforth showed to his victim would appall any civilised human being. He marked Garforth's file as never to be released, and, under the New South Wales truth and sentencing laws, this means he will die in prison. Despite this, he still tried to appeal his sentence in December of 1994. On what grounds? Yeah, on the grounds that he claimed there had been no finding that he would remain dangerous for the rest of his life. I think the key
1: finding is that, as you said, he was incredibly calm through the whole thing and he doesn't appear to show any remorse. I mean, I think it's incredibly rare that this sort of person is rehabilitated, Mm -hmm. but the starting place has to be some sense of guilt from the perpetrator and the fact that, by all accounts, he doesn't seem to recognise the gravity of what he's done or be being kept awake at night by it suggests to me that there's quite strong evidence he's going to remain dangerous for life
0: completely completely also the judge literally marked his file with like stating that he should never be released so I don't know what more the courts can sh- like do to show you know that they think that he will be dangerous for the rest of his life but
1: yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean
0: regardless he somehow managed to make this appeal but thankfully the appeal was denied um And I'm pretty sure now, actually, that he's exhausted all his appeals and the various other grounds that he wants to try and use to get out. Um, I think now he's used them all up. And so he will die in prison. Um, With regards to his life in prison, he's been attacked on several occasions. On one occasion, he was attacked by over 10 prisoners at the same time. Blimey. What a shame.
1: I always find it fascinating that there's that hierarchy in prisons, and I completely agree that, to be honest with it, committing crimes against innocent children mm-hmm. probably is as low as you can get. So you can understand it, but mm-hmm. I still do find it fascinating that there's yeah, it, I don't know. It speaks to something a little bit that humans can't live without forcing these yeah degrees of hierarchy and mm. inequality, and I just find it like fascinating. It happens like organically in prisons but i mean i'm not feeling sorry for the guy at this point
0: no 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 No, i don't i don't think anyone is yeah Mm.
1: so do we know anything else though because i think we talk about this a lot in the podcast but this seems an incredibly extreme um crime just to be a one-off i mean awful but have his children ever spoken up has he ever been linked to any other crimes any other historic behavior because it seems very odd that this should be a one-off
0: you're honestly <laughs> it's like sometimes you can read my mind um <laughs> yeah so it's kind of weird in the documentaries and the other things that I was looking at there wasn't anything like that there wasn't any kind of like connection but then I was like yeah especially after we did the kind of Charlie Brandt episode I was like thinking a lot about the, some of the like the things you said about the psychology behind it and it made me think like this is such a really like violent brutal you know kind of spur of the moment attack I'm so surprised that this hasn't he hasn't done something like this before yeah
1: and I think also um I mean this is really graphic to say but the fact that there was a sexual element to this crime suggests that ultimately we don't like to see it like this but um paedophilia is a sexual preference so it just Mm -hmm. seems really unlikely that he'd have lived his whole life having never acted on it before
0: Mm -hmm. okay so he has been linked to one other crime although he has not been charged or formally connected to it although investigations are supposedly still happening this crime was the murder of felicia marie wilson she wasn't underage so she was 19 years old when she was murdered so kind of goes against your paedophilia point but this the you know still very young yeah, yeah, still yeah, still, comp- really, really young. So she was murdered in 1979 in Quinana in Perth. Uh, Felicia Wilson was involved in tennis championships and beauty pageants, and she was kind of well-loved by her community. Very similar to um, the murder of Ebony Simpson, Felicia Wilson was brutally attacked in broad daylight on her way home from work. Her head was crushed by a heavy object and she was left for dead the case to this day has remained unsolved. But like I said, Andrew Garforth has been linked to it because he was actually living in the area at the time. Um, But that's kind of as far as I can go with what's been reported. I think my personal opinion, it does sound like his MO, you know, like he attacked a pretty girl in broad daylight and killed her in a brutal way. And there were lots of people in the surrounding area, but nobody heard or saw anything suspicious, which kind of fits with his very calm and relaxed persona. And, you know, kind of like what we talked about in the Charlie Brandt episode. Um, And like I said, that conversation did have me thinking whilst I was writing up my notes for this case because he seems to have the traits of a psychopath, don't you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: He Like, no remorse, no fear, and he doesn't really care if he'll get caught or not. There's really no emotion when when he's charged or convicted. There doesn't seem to be any kind of emotion of any kind coming from him.
1: No, I would completely agree. And I think, as you say, he's he's not said sorry. It's incredibly... Um, brazen I mean I don't know people might just say it's hiding in plain sight but to yeah take this girl grab her on the side of the road not even trick her into his car to grab her shows mm-hmm. a real air of confidence and I really don't think that's the actions of a man who's committing a crime for the first time no, I or one who you know doesn't think he must think very highly of himself that to do it in such a small community and clearly hold a belief that he's capable of doing it without getting caught I think it you know, really shows some kind of delusions of grandeur and self-confidence, mm-hmm. which, yeah, you is quite typical of psychopathy.
0: And he doesn't have, like, any kind of thought process when it comes to, like, what people might think about him or, like, what he's doing. Because, like, you know, um, I said that he has been beaten up in prison loads and things like that. Mm. Because of these attacks, he applied for victim compensation to come out of, like, the state fund to pay him, to compensate him for the fact that he apparently is a victim in prison. Like, can you... Which I'm um,
1: surely is not what it's there for.
0: No, well, absolutely not. So as you can imagine, the public outcry from this was huge and his lawyers did end up withdrawing this request. Who
1: are his lawyers at this point?
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, don't know. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It's just a complete, like, yeah, so far removed from reality at that point, isn't he? That you can't have any idea of no. actually no, no one's going to believe that and feel sorry for you.
0: No, I just think it's it's so bizarre. But yeah... The everything you said, like the hiding in plain sight thing, you know, the fact that he planted himself within the search party and he like parked his bright yellow vehicle right in front of the police. Like,
1: yeah, I think parking his car in plain sight and joining the search parties either got to speak to his completely unearned confidence or frankly, that he's just enjoying it in some twisted way, yeah. which, again, I think you see in a lot of big crimes, don't you, that actually psychopaths do enjoy Mm -hmm. watching people try and catch them and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, I think all the signs point towards, um, yeah, this man being a psychopath.
0: Mm -hmm. So, like I said, the case of uh, Felicia Wilson is still unsolved and Garforth has not been formally charged with her murder. Um, As mentioned earlier, he will remain in prison for the rest of his life for the murder of Ebony Simpson. So I guess at least that's a small relief for her family. Um, Unfortunately, I did read somewhere that... um, He's now been downgraded from an A-grade maximum security prison to a B-grade, which means that he gets more privileges. And this, of course, is a a blow to to Ebony's family. Um, But I guess, yeah, like I said, one small relief is that he won't ever be released from prison. But I really want to end this episode by talking about the Simpson family. Their lives after Ebony's murder were slow and painful. Christine said that her hardest memory is that of one of the officers coming to her door and telling her that her daughter had been murdered. She said the officers were emotionless and they delivered the news as if they were reading from a script and the whole thing had felt very forced. It was clear the officers had not had the proper training to deliver such life-changing news. Also, kind of adding to this, the family tried to get counselling after Ebony's murder, but no counsellors wanted to take on the family and take on their pain as they felt they wouldn't be able to help them. And that honestly makes my heart hurt so much. I can't imagine what that must feel like to reach out to professionals to get help and then they basically say that you're you're too damaged for us that we don't know how to help you
1: yeah absolutely that would just feel like such a yeah i don't know a sentence in itself wouldn't it that actually mm-hmm. yeah you as professional don't you think i can get better and you can understand that particularly living in a small area these people might not feel equipped to deal with this trauma yeah. but actually you'd hope at that time that all anyone could do is try their best
0: yeah Yeah completely so thankfully finally she reached out to the counsellor from the morgue so I think he was a forensic counsellor or something but he worked at the morgue and um, Mm. he was actually the one who had shown uh, Christine Ebony's body for identification. His name was John Merrick and to this day the two are still really firm friends. Christine said that her life just fell apart and John really helped her he invited Christine into his home and let her stay the night because at this point her life had fallen completely apart and she was actually living out of her car so um she because she'd left her husband and i imagine that's as a result of the grief um yeah. so uh, yeah so when Christine turned up at John's door um he actually invited her in to stay the night and in an interview that i saw the interview was kind of like well, did you think that, that was maybe crossing a boundary and this is what John said and this is a direct quote he said didn't care, straight away, straight mind. I had no doubt in my mind that what I was doing was right for me, whether it's right for the profession or for, you know, the board of ethics somewhere. I couldn't give a shit. Couldn't give a shit. And like, I literally, I literally love that from him. Good John. Yeah, no. We need more Johns in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, John said that he started his relationship with Christine as a counselor, but it turned into a friendship. During this time, John realised that despite his attempts to help Christine, he really couldn't give her everything that she needed because, ultimately, he had no idea what she was going through. Therefore, John and Christine set up the Homicide Victim Support Group. This joined together families who had experienced a murder. Christine got close to Gary Lynch. Gary Lynch is the father of Anita Cobby. She was also brutally murdered in Australia in 1986 in another completely senseless killing. So Christine and Gary met up and proceeded to reach out to other families who had suffered this terrible fate too. The Homicide Victim Support Group united a group of people who had something so awful and life-changing in common and a group where everyone there knew exactly what everyone else was feeling. After the success of this, Christine went on to set up Ebony House in her daughter's honour. Ebony House is a recovery centre for victims for homicide. It's a place where families and individuals can go in private to grieve. Christine and her contacts, as part of Ebony House and the Homicide Victim Support Group, went on to help the police and train them in how to give information to families and loved ones of the homicide victims. This was particularly important for Christine because, as I mentioned earlier, she had such an awful memory of how they broke the news to her, and so her help and work with the police to deliver this information in a sensitive way has ensured that other families do not have those awful experiences and memories too. And I just think like, once again, I, see, I know we, we seem to say a lot on these episodes, but it is really amazing how hard these victims work to change things and work so hard to overcome all the adversity and the horrors that they've endured, because this is amazing work from Christine Simpson and wonderful that she's able to keep Ebony's memory alive with Ebony House, which is, you know, also undoubtedly helping so many other people and families at the same time. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's such an amazing strength for people to find within them after having your child murdered honestly must be one yeah. of the worst things any human being can live through and to not only pick yourself back up and and get your life back together but then actually to go on and really make a positive contribution yeah. and change in the world i really do think there's nothing more completely, commendable than that
0: completely agree ebony simpson's headstone reads dear friends my life was cut short through no fault of my own you have yours ahead of you i only ask one thing Spend your time here wisely. Do not cry for things past, for tomorrow is the beginning of a brand new day. Live each day with kindness and with hope. Thank you, all you wonderful people, for listening. I'm sorry if this episode was quite hard. We hope that it was informative, though, and hopefully not too upsetting. Please join us on Wednesday, where we will be doing another listener request. This one is a suspicious death in the military that was ruled a suicide. And for you top true crime lovers out there, I'm sure you would have heard of this case and uh, you probably know which one I'm talking about. But I know, I think for certain that Sal hasn't heard all the details on this case. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you don't know what case I'm talking about. No, I haven't got a clue. (laughs) as always (laughs) so that's good so um, hopefully even if you are familiar with this case you'll still join us to hear Sal's views and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get a good discussion going as well so yeah thank you guys for listening and we'll see you on Wednesday, bye bye (laughs) bye